What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, Elon Musk moving aside as CEO of Twitter, and an NBC ad executive reportedly taking his place. CNBC's Julia Borston. I think for Elon Musk, as he manages Twitter, I think that she would be someone who could really shore up those relationships with advertisers. If he's focusing on the product, she'd be the one who could really build out the ad business. How she'll do it, and what it all means for Tesla shareholders. Former Ford CEO Mark Fields. The bottom line is a lot of investors and shareholders were concerned that he was spending too much of his time there. It was basically sucking up all his time. And hackers are using AI to enhance their phishing attacks. We're talking turbocharged cyber crime with technologist and AI investor Michael Furtick. You can imagine a perhaps even more scary scenario where deep fakes might be used to impersonate your CEO's voice. Those stories, but first, those DC debt ceiling discussions still dragging on. We're on the ground in Washington with CNBC's Kayla Tausche. Negotiators try to find common ground between two fairly distant positions. It's Friday, May 12th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Joe Kernan. Becky and Andrew are off today. Today's meeting with President Biden and top congressional leaders has been postponed until next week, but is a delay a positive development? Kayla Tausche joins us now with more from Washington. Kayla. Hey, Melissa, the news of the postponement coming yesterday after market close and after two days of staff level meetings that will continue through the weekend as negotiators try to find common ground between two fairly distant positions. At a press conference yesterday evening, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the decision to delay was mutual, but he suggested the administration didn't want a deal. The White House didn't cancel the meeting. All of the leaders decided it's probably in the best of our interest to let the staff meet again before we get back together. I have not seen from there uh, a seriousness of the White House that they want a deal. It seems like they want a default more than they want a deal. That sentiment coming after some marathon meetings this week. Yesterday, over two hours with White House Legislative Affairs Chief Louisa Terrell huddling on Capitol Hill with top aides to the congressional leaders. A source familiar with the meeting suggested the development was positive and that staff meetings were productive, but that there still wasn't enough for the principals to get together and discuss. Now, among the items seen as ground for compromise, the top one on the list is permitting reform. White House Energy Advisor John Podesta seemingly supporting those efforts in these remarks this week. The administration is serious about building a secure energy future that strengthens America's economy. If Congress is ready to do the same, they'll, they, if, if Congress is ready to do the same, they'll pass bipartisan permitting reform that includes the White House's priorities. Other areas of focus clawing back unspent COVID aid, which President Biden himself has mentioned, capping spending levels into the future, 
and requiring work for those on Medicaid and food stamps. It's those last two that could prove to be the thorns in the negotiations, which would need to reach some conclusion by the time President Biden leaves for Asia on Wednesday. Melissa and Joe. Kayla, thanks. Kayla Tausch with the very latest in Washington. Big news with Elon Musk, Tesla, Twitter. He says he's picked a CEO to run Twitter. Musk tweeted yesterday afternoon he's already hired someone and that she will start in about six weeks. And sources tell CNBC that Musk is speaking with NBC Universal head of advertising, Linda Yaccarino, about uh, taking that position. And we've reached out to Yaccarino as well as NBC Universal, CNBC's parent company, and uh, NBCU owner, Comcast. And now to talk more about this news, let's bring in our own Julia Borson. Should make for an interesting upfront this Monday, Julia. Yes, yes, that's right. Now, uh, my sources close to the situation tell me that Linda Gaccarino is in advanced talks with Elon Musk to be the new CEO of Twitter. We are awaiting um, a comment uh, and official news from any of the related parties. But the timing here is so interesting and particularly very challenging for NBC Universal, given the fact that NBC Universal is hosting its upfront on Monday morning at 10:30 a.m. Um, Eastern. It's going to be in New York. Linda Yaccarino usually runs the show. She is the voice um, of advertising for NBC Universal. Um, under her purview, Joe, she has really grown the NBC Universal ad business, really invested in its reach. They put ads and target ads, not just on the linear TV and on Peacock, but also have embedded ads on different platforms, including Twitter. There's a longstanding partnership between Twitter and NBC Universal, um, as well as other places like YouTube. So massive reach. She's really invested in targeting um, and built this huge business, bigger than any of the other media giants' ad businesses. And she would certainly, it would certainly be a big coup for Elon Musk to bring her over, given her strong relationships with advertisers. He's much loved uh, around here. Um, and, you know, Stuff people get opportunities. I don't. I don't know the details, but I would wish her well. Everybody loves her, right? Julia, you know, uh, you know her as well. I'm sure, and one of the most popular executives. Yeah, very well liked. I've, I've worked with her on various um, moderating various panels and things. But to me, what's most interesting is the relationship she's forged with these brands and in so many ways really positioned NBC Universal as not just a traditional media company in terms of advertising, but also having the targeting and measurement capabilities that the social platforms had. So she really took NBC Universal from being a linear ad business to really build up um, the, the digital part of the ad business. And the key thing here really is that reach. They have this one platform. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. In addition to the upfronts next week, there is the Can Advertising Festival that's coming up in June. Lindy Yakrinu typically has a very big presence there, along with NBC Universal, CNBC's parent company. Um, so she has a deep bench of executives who, who work with her, and I'm sure we'll see many of them on stage on Monday, um, either along with her or without her, depending on how this all uh, goes down. But I think for Elon Musk, uh, you know, as he manages Twitter and the fact that Twitter has seen um, some concern from advertisers, that I think that she would be someone who could really shore up those relationships with advertisers um, and, and really fill, compliment Elon Musk. You know, if he's focusing on the product, she'd be the one who could really build out the ad business. Right. I was 
remember feeling sort of, uh, not awestruck, but, but envy when she interviewed Elon. You saw that. I mean, we would love to have him come in here and sit out I on saw the that. box. And uh, Linda got, I don't know whether that's when they developed uh, uh, such rapport where this could happen. I'm sure it didn't hurt, right? So about a month ago, and so I have to say, you know, Elon Musk has been making these efforts to strengthen his relationship with the ad community. NBC Universal and Twitter have had this sort of content advertising partnership. Think back to all the times that the Olympics um, are putting clips on Twitter. So they have had this longstanding relationship, um, which they had been working to, to continue and to strengthen. So Linda Yaccarino did interview Elon Musk at a conference in, in Florida about a month ago. And then I do know that they were both at this WPP conference. Um, WPP, one of the largest ad conglomerates, one of the largest ad holding companies. Musk and Yakarina were together at this, um, at this WPP conference earlier this week. Um, so they were together at this conference in Napa. Certainly they would have interacted there. Um, so they, they were clearly in touch um, and we'll see um, we'll see as this plays out whether there's an announcement, whether we could hear something more today. Elon Musk certainly um, likes to tweet out this news. So I'm watching his Twitter to see what kind of um, announcements we hear from him. But they were definitely in touch. And it seems like that um, that that interaction they had, that interview they had in Florida could have strengthened yeah, their relationship. I think they share a, a fervor for, uh, you know, First Amendment um, and free speech. Uh, as well, which you would imagine. Yeah, that, and that was something that came up in Florida. Yeah, yeah. In that in that interview they did in Florida, Yakrina said she um, was Im impressed by and, and uh, supported his commitment to free speech on the Twitter platform. She's a, she's a very uh, well-known, high-profile female executive, obviously with a huge job. I don't know. This might be a whole new level uh, when when you think about it in terms of visibility and everything else. Even though it's a private company now, but. Uh, I mean, anybody, if she, she may love it here, it might be, she may bleed NBC blue, whatever you want to call it. But when you get an offer like that, uh, I, I think you have to think about it, right, Julia? Yeah, I mean, certainly the Twitter, the Twitter job is a big one and a challenging one. Um, and the question, of course, is how much Elon Musk will still be involved in the day-to-day -day, um, and how much their roles would be complementary. Uh, but we'll be watching for news, Joe. Um, yep. Certainly fascinating, of course, involving our, our parent company. Exactly. And, and then Monday. Tesla's recalling almost every car it has ever sold in China due to an issue with acceleration systems. Chinese regulators say the issue involves the probability of drivers mistakenly stepping on the accelerator pedal for an extended period. The company plans to make adjustments or add notification uh, features. Chinese regulators say around 1.1 million uh, cars that Tesla built in Shanghai or imported since 2019 uh, will require an over-the-air update to fix the issue. And that's, you know, the Tesla bulls and their, take Tesla bears and Tesla bulls and they're like the same people. They're fanatics oh, on, yeah, on either side. side. They're fanatics, so just, you know, tread lightly. But uh, the, the Tesla bulls always scream when we call it a recall when it's an over-the-air fix. Right. You know what I mean? Because it implies... Yeah, exactly. Basically. No, and they go nuts if we don't specify Well, recall that it's implies... An recall sounds like... taking the car, there's like a, labor like involved. It's, there's a cost to the company, right. whereas an over-the-air upgrade exactly. is... is oh, no, I, we, we've much. all had issues where you got to bring your car in because the airbag is messed right. up or something and leave it there. And that... And you think 1.1 million cars in China got to go back and be, that's not what know. it is. It's just like you press a button and then it's. Right. So I just want to cover my uh, 
bases. You're afraid of the trolls. Cover my base. Deathly afraid. <laughs> That's why I don't have a blue check mark. I told you that. Right. Because it may not be Who me. Who knows if it's you? Could be anybody. Could be me. Could be some total blowhard. That you mean tweets you? All that. It could be me, the total blowhard, <laughs> or it could be somebody else. Cheese will be next. Next up on Squawk Pod, more on Tesla. Elon Musk's plan to step down as Twitter CEO has boosted Tesla stock, but former Ford CEO Mark Fields says they've still got some bumps in the road ahead. The question is, are the products coming a little too fast before the charging infrastructure and before the ability to kind of reduce these charging times to make it convenient for customers? The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. The most innovative companies are going further with T Mobile for business. Tractor Supply trusts 5G solutions from T-Mobile. Together, we're connecting over 2,200 stores with 5G business internet, empowering AI so team members can match shoppers with the products they need faster. This is enriching customer experience. This is Tractor Supply with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod today with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee. Here's Joe. Tesla stock uh, jumping yesterday after Elon Musk announced that he'll be stepping down as CEO of Twitter in the next six weeks. Joining us now is Mark Fields, former uh, Ford Motor Company president and CEO, as well as a CNBC contributor. I guess that was kind of a, not hard to, to understand why it happened, Mark, but is there, uh, is there a logic that will play out over time uh, if Elon gets to spend more time at Twitter, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Freudian slip. At Tesla, is that what, should the stock be trading higher on that? Well, you're seeing the early returns. Obviously, the uh, the market uh, react favorably to it. I mean, the bottom line is a lot of investors and shareholders were concerned that you know he was spending too much of his time there. It was it was basically sucking up all his time. And now that he's going to become exec chairman, I, and I think uh, was the chief technology officer, he'll be able to spend more time than he has been over the last six nine months on Tesla. But let's put it into perspective. Versus a year ago, he's got another company that he's exec chairman and chief technology officer of. So you have less of Elon more than you did a year ago, but you have more of them versus the last six to nine months. And I think investors are reacting positively to that. You people could argue that, you know, it's not true that we only use 10 percent of our brain, but I, I don't know what Elon's uses of his brain but you got spacex too i mean think of i, I mean he, he he either he can do it all or there are limits to to how much even elon can focus on yeah that's true but it all comes down to joe you know the kind of team that you build around you and i think what uh what musk has done you know let's use tesla for example in the investor day they had about a month or two ago it was the first time he trotted out his management team he had about 12 or 13 you know, high-level uh, executives at his company going through their various presentations. And it was pretty high-quality presentations. So he he not only has this gift of being able to, uh, 
kind of described his view of the future and a vision for that. But his other gift is he attracts people to, to come to these literally when, when at the beginning, these impossible ideas and rally around them and execute on them. And I think that's the key to him going forward is not only these different companies that he's overseeing, but obviously building great teams. And, you know, he's he has a good track record of doing that, although he grinds through people pretty quickly. He does. And, and we used to hear about a lot of management turnover. It's kind of interesting because the journal had to have been working on this story before yesterday. And now, I mean, it's, it's on the front page about Zach Kirkhorn. You familiar with him that he keeps things running uh, at Tesla CFO? And uh, Elon just calls him Zach, like we're supposed to know who he's talking about. Well, you know, the, the, the most effective CFOs use their CFOs not only for their functional knowledge of, you know, keeping the books, doing the forecasts, making sure there's right controls in the company, but also using them almost as, as COOs because, you know, as you know, the CFO gets to see the entire business. Uh, and, you know, I don't know uh, Zach personally, but he's been CFO for the last, uh, you know, number of years. And uh, obviously, he, he relies on him a lot. And he relies on some of the other folks that we saw come out in that investor day, which literally we've never had a chance to kind of see before. So uh, it was it was quite interesting. For Twitter, he might be the anti-Musk. Elon blasts it says here blasts out pronouncements to 137 million followers. Zach has 63 followers, and his account is locked. You can't even see it if you. <laughs> well, like, you know. You want your CFO focused on their job, right? <laughs> and I think that's what he's doing. What, um, just to, to broaden the conversation, I do see a few other luxury car makers, people are buying a couple of their EVs. Nothing, nothing even close to Tesla, though. There are, in, where I live in New Jersey, it's about, it seems to me like it's 50% Tesla. It's mind-boggling. And there's a white one goes by, and then a red one goes by, and then a blue one goes, and then another white one, then another red one. I get tired of them because they all look like, you know, cookie cutters. Uh, but um, there are really not many Beamers or Mercedes or Taycans around yet. Well, they're starting. I mean, you know, the Mercedes uh, line was launched a little less than a year ago. That's starting to do well. BMW has uh, launched their uh, a couple of models of their full EVs that are off to a good start, but it's still early days. I think to your point, as you know, Joe, there was a, a, a there were a number of startup EV companies. You know, whether it's uh, Rivian, whether uh, Lucid, etc. Uh, I think, uh, you know, those those companies are trying to scale. And as you're seeing from their recent results, you know, the auto business just sucks down capital. And because they haven't been able to scale, you see their cash uh, levels yeah. dwindling. So anybody that's going to go purchase one of those vehicles have to have a lot of faith that those companies are actually going to be around in the next, you know, three or four years. And I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing Tesla continue to do so well. But the established OEMs, they're coming, and they're coming hard and fast, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Are they coming hard and fast, Mark? I mean, what we learned from Ford is that EV sales were down 25% year-on-year in April. The Mach-E sales, the EV sales were down more than 50% year-on-year in the month of April. It seems like it's a lot harder than what the legacy OEMs thought it would be in terms of the, the road to the EV market. Well, you have to put, I think, Ford sales for the Mach-E into perspective. They were retooling the plant to actually increase capacity. Uh, and I think for the F-150, they're also doing some actions to increase some capacity. 
But, you know, overall, the, the automakers, I think what the established automakers, what they face, if you look at somebody like Tesla, you know, Tesla at their heart, they're a software and a battery company that's becoming a manufacturing company. And the automakers are engineering and manufacturing companies that are trying to become battery and software companies. Uh, I would say that's uh, that's that's a tall order, but they're they're hiring the right people. They're coming out with the products, and they know scale. They know how to get costs down, and you know they have very strong distribution networks. And I think it's really going to play out over the next you know one to two to three years when all this capacity comes on from the established OEMs. Uh, to see how they do in the marketplace and if consumers uh, really, uh, you know, uh, are attracted to the, the EVs and some of the challenges around charging and cost. In, in theory, though, costs have come down, Mark, haven't they? I mean, when you compare year on year in particular, I mean, lithium costs have come down dramatically. Commodity costs across the board have pretty much come down. So shouldn't we be seeing some sort of a improvement in margins to come in the coming months and, and quarters ahead? For the OEMs when it comes to EVs? Yes, you, you have seen, to your point, you've seen some of the base elements actually actually come down. Uh, and, you know, I think over time, what you're going to see probably in the next probably three to four years, you're going to probably see cost parity between internal combustion engine vehicles and electric vehicles. You're starting to see that in some of the pricing that, you know, obviously all the pricing reductions that Tesla has, the, the Model Y is down like 20% since the beginning of the year. And I think, you know, their, their, their input costs are, are going down. They're getting more efficient in their manufacturing. Uh, you're going to see cost uh, parity between ICE and EVs over the next couple of years. I think the key question going forward from a consumer standpoint is the convenience factors. As these EVs come on uh, and as the cost comes down, are they going to be willing to deal with the larger, longer charging times and just the availability of chargers, which will be built out over time? And the question is, are the products coming a little too fast before the charging infrastructure and before the ability to kind of reduce these charging times to make it convenient for customers? And I think that's the big question as these products come on the marketplace. You got those numbers that Melissa talked about. That's rough. And then you got those, you see those polls that it's going to take some convincing or prices got to come down to get the average person to say, I can't wait to buy an EV. And, and you look at what the government or the Biden administration is, is trying to migrate uh, people to that. They're, they're, they're like a mile apart on what people want to do and where we're supposed to be by 2030. You think that's all going to take care of itself, Mark? Well, it'll take care of itself over the time, but you're exactly right, Joe. You know, when, when you do con uh, polling of consumers and they say, hey, you know, would you consider an EV? There are some that won't, right, for the time being because they don't understand the technology or, you know, they don't uh, really want to step up in the price. But the ones that say, yeah, you know, I'll consider it, they'll consider it until it comes time to then actually put their money across the table. And that's when they're going to do the homework. Right? They're going to do their homework not only of how does this cost versus the equivalent uh, ICE vehicle, but they're going to look at, hey, if I live in an apartment and I don't have you know, a two-car garage that I can you know, charge my vehicle, what are the convenience factors here for me? And if it's not as convenient as filling up at a station, uh, that's going to factor in their, in their buying decisions. So I think this will, this will, this will solve itself over time. But again, it's this mismatch between all the products coming and at what point does the consumer behavior change and that charging infrastructure build out? 
when I am able to pump my own gas, I can do it in like a minute and a half with the credit card. I'm done. I'm in. I'm out. Now I'm spending. I'm going to spend more time boiling water and cooking because of my stupid electric stove because I can't have a gas stove anymore, Mark. Then I'm going to spend 45 minutes charging my... I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I'm sorry. You you know, it's a really interesting point. If you think of what is the one luxury that every demographic group has, and that's time. time. Right. And that's really going to factor in. Time waits for no one. Gordon Gecko. It's the only thing... What? It's the only thing you can't get more of. Mark, thank you. Appreciate it. You bet. All right. All right. Well, you got to keep low on the cholesterol. That's right. Keep trying it as much time as you can. We'll all benefit from that. Coming up on Squawk Pod, how AI has turbocharged cybercrime. Which players will win the AI war with entrepreneur, AI machine learning and robotics investor and technologist Michael Furtick? In the Silicon Valleys of the world and venture capital communities, I think we're all looking for companies that will use AI to combat cyber AI attacks. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Joe Kernan. Becky and Andrew are off today. Meta unveiling new tools and services powered by artificial intelligence to help advertisers. Meta says it uh, says the, uh, quote, AI Sandbox, what do I think of cats? I don't know. It is a testing playground for advertisers to try out, uh, to try new generation AI-powered tools to build and improve campaigns. Meta says uh, access to the features are available to a select a few right now, but the company will begin expanding access uh, starting in July. Generative AI technologies could turbocharge cyber crimes like phishing attacks, which poses new challenges in cybersecurity. Joining us now with who is best positioned to win the AI arms race, Michael Furtick, founder of Heroic Ventures, which invests in AI, robotics, and machine learning. Michael, great to have you with us. Hey, Alyssa. How are you? If, if hackers and scammers are, are you know, mostly trying to impersonate or or make an individual believe that they know them in order for them to hand over information. I mean, I would think that AI is a really powerful tool. And you would be right. <laughs> right now, the scammers, the hackers, the attackers have gotten a jump on the defenders for sure. They are quickly adopting and adapting to the new technologies in generative AI. They are using their technologies to enhance their attacks. I think phishing is a very good example. Uh, we're all familiar with the concept of phishing. Someone might send you an email and say, hey, click here to fix your account. And then if you do, your computer could be compromised and that could lead to a financial loss or some other kind of uh, com- compromising of your company's assets. Well, AI can generate those emails more believably, more often, less repetitively than ever before. Also, you can imagine a perhaps even more scary scenario where deep fakes uh, might be used to impersonate your CEO's voice or your CFO's voice. They might listen to some speeches or some interviews here on TV of a CEO or a CFO and then very uh, very believably 
imitate that CEO's voice, leave you a voicemail, a deep fix voicemail and say, hey, look, you know, uh, so-and-so, I need you to go to this link and wire some money real quick or uh, come over here and send some details about our our, our, our company, uh, including even just business details. And then they've then they've struck a win against you. So yeah. right now we are seeing we are seeing companies uh, that are offering defense tools and have offered defense tools for a while respond. They're offering new suites of technologies. Google's announced one. Microsoft announced one. Uh, a bunch of other companies have announced one. I should probably say that I'm a shareholder in many of these companies, um, as you can imagine, and uh, public and private. And you're going to see a lot of tools that are coming up to combat the effects of AI that are being used by hackers. But for sure, right now, the hackers have the jump. And by the way, the winners are going to be the arms dealers, right? They always are. I think Bill Gates said in 2004, 2004, I think he was on stage at Davos, if not mistaken, he said, uh, we're going to have the end of spam within two years. That's 2006. Well, you and I know very well that spam has continued to flourish and the weapons to fight the increasing sophisticated attacks just need to be upgraded all the time. So the arms dealers, the the thoroughbred uh, cybersecurity companies are often going to be the winners um, generation after generation is my my basic view. What's funny is that 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 scenario that you outlined with the CFO, uh, you know, some some sort of fake voice it, that actually happened in Europe where there was a fake yes. voicemail. Right. The CFO left yeah. supposedly the fake C CFO and somebody actually wired money out of the company's account. So it's already happened even prior to these leaps and in, inbounds yeah. advances in, in generative A.I. Uh, even aside from sort of the, this aspect of it, Michael, there's also the use of generative A.I. Um, in coding, and and this is, I think, is maybe an underappreciated aspect of of AI, and that is the help in the back to code things. And I would imagine that that's a huge tool for hackers as well. When you mentioned the arms race and the arms dealers winning, who is best positioned at this point in in handling these emerging threats? So you're right. So so AI is very good at coding. AI is generally good at coding uh, by accident. So generative AI models, the big the big models like OpenAI and so forth, that are very famous, that are on everyone's lips, the GPT models, these LLMs, these large language models, have basically learned how to code by accident. That might sound funny to you, but they're very good at doing words and essays and sentences and paragraphs. And some subset of those are coding expressions and coding methods and coding functions. So they've become very good at doing certain kinds of coding activities. And some of those coding activities could be used by scammers and hackers to insert or create at scale a lot more malware, for example, that might live on your machine and find things in your machine or even generate emails from your machine, mm -hmm. right? Which is really, really scary. Um, look, in terms of the winners, I, I, again, I think that the, the we used to say in business, maybe Joe Kernan would still say in business, maybe you would say in business to Melissa, that no matter what happens, the lawyers always win. Well, uh, it turns out that no matter what happens in, in cyber, the cyber arms dealers will win. And so some of these are very big companies already that are some of the biggest in the world, the FANG companies. And some are like Sentinel One, where I'm a shareholder, uh, mm -hmm. uh, or CrowdStrike, some others that are very, very big. So I think you can imagine also a new raft of companies, right, in, in the Silicon Valleys of the world and venture capital communities. I think we're all looking for companies that will use AI to combat cyber AI attacks. Uh, you can probably uh, bet your bippy that we're all looking for those companies. And I think you're going to see the birth of new companies and, gen you know, geniuses uh, generating new technologies to, to deflect and counterattack right. and to 
uh, do penetration testing of of uh, of, of potential potentially vulnerable companies and so yeah. forth. There's a lot at stake, and the hackers are very very smart. Some state sponsored, and some just state sympathetic, and some just out for, out to make a buck. And they need yeah. they need to be defeated uh, over and over again. Sure, Michael, thank you. That's the podcast for today and for the week. If you missed any of our episodes this week, it's worth scrolling back in your feed. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger await you. CNBC had exclusive access to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in Omaha, Nebraska last weekend. And we brought the highlights to you here on Squawk Pod. Plus, there's even extra content from the Berkshire Hathaway meeting that you'll only find here on the podcast. Crowds of people drawn to a man in his 90s like a rock star. He is a rock star. Squawk Box, our TV broadcast, is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC starting at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from that show right into your ears, plus, like you heard, a little extra, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.